Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 165 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I'm Rick Verbonis, and I am your host of this episode, and I am joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there. That is one, Mr. Bob Lucius. Oh, Bob, if there's something strange in your neighborhood, if there's something weird and it don't look good, if you're seeing things running through your head, invisible man sleeping in your bed, who are you going to call? <laughs> I'm going to call the ghost army, Rick. Oh, I ain't afraid yeah. of no ghost. Oh, my goodness. You made it sound like poetry. I did, didn't I? Yeah. I, I should have done it like William Shatner. Oh, that right? would have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, <laughs> if there's something weird <laughs> and it don't look good, <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, you know, Casey and I, our big thing Sunday morning, we watch, we watch the, the talk shows, uh -huh. you know, or news junkies. Right. And so the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has a cadence that is a lot like William Shatner. Okay. And so, yeah, we were making fun of that on, on Sunday over coffee, trying to like do impressions of the Secretary of State, but in a William Shatner voice, you know, talking about uh, world events and things like that. So, oh, yeah, he's just such a just, he's, I would say William Shatner is unique, but apparently Anthony Blinken went to the William Shatner School of, of Speaking. So, well, the thing about William Shatner is his pause between <laughs> right, yeah. dramatic effect. Yes. And in the middle of a sentence where none would normally go. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I want to hear you do a Blinken no, impersonation right now. No, I can't. I'm under, I, I don't work well under pressure. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not professionally uh, uh, trained. As I, I hear it's not just under pressure. <laughs> There may be some truth to that. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, Bob. So welcome. Uh, welcome this week. We we haven't, we, you know, we, we talk once a week. Uh, how's your week been going? Are you doing all right? Ah, uh, Rick, I, you know, I got to tell you, I, I, I think I mentioned this before, but having some stomach issues, some stomach uh -huh. pain. I was like thinking, um, you know, I, I had an ulcer for a while. Not like a full-blown ulcer, but like the beginnings of an ulcer. This was several years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I've been under a lot of stress lately, uh, work, and uh, I don't know. I felt like it was coming back. And so I made an appointment to see uh, a GI specialist, which I, I went to see today. And he wants me to get an endoscopy, Rick. Have you ever had an endoscopy? I have not. Can you take me through that, please? It sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, it's like a colonoscopy except they stick it in the front door, like, you know, down your throat and, and the best doctors, oh. I mean, like the, the, the better doctors, they use Yikes. a different hose than they would for the colonoscopy. Let's hope so. That's the ones you want to go with, right? That's uh -huh. sort of the, the more top shelf doctors. So. I see. So if I, if I, if I'm going for uh, an, an, an appointment with one of these, I need to, that's one of the questions that's, I need you to should ask. To that ask yes. Yeah. Do yeah. you use a different uh, hose? And if not, do you wash it off? <laughs> you at least rinse it. Yeah. So, you know, I've had it before. Uh, 
And the thing is, you know, honestly, it's 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 not that big of a deal because you you don't remember any of it. It's a lot like the colonoscopy. You know, they give you the twilight sort of anesthesia, or a, a lot like uh, you your your wife's first time with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was memorable. It was just memorably short. But so it's so so they 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 do the whole twilight sleep. So you don't remember it, um, and they got to come out and tell you like everything that happened, right? But I remember the doctor telling me after in the recovery room, like, oh, you were a handful, (laughs) which means they had to bring people in to restrain me to make this happen. Right. Because they do like it's it's not a small tube. It's like it's like it's like the size of like maybe a little bit bigger than a nickel. You know, the the something you should be used to. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So. So, you know, they got to, they, they spray your throat with all this numbing agent and then they like snake it down. It's very quick, but, but, you know, most people don't like that sort of sensation. And so of they, course, do, yeah. they do anesthetize you and you don't remember it, but I've always felt like there's some part inside my brain where that memory lingers, mm. even if I consciously so don't So it's remember. kind of like a, uh, one of your penguins, but he's like tripping. Yeah, he's right. Yeah, he's got his eyes closed, right? Mm-hmm. But he could open it at any moment and reveal that memory. And I really don't want that memory. So even though like you don't remember, you know, you know it's completely lost to your consciousness. A part of me is like, I don't really want to do that again. So I made that appointment for like December, like, you know, because um, we're recording this much earlier. Uh, so that's a month away, a little over a month away. So I figure if if the situation gets better, then I can cancel it. And it does seem to mm-hmm. be getting better. I'm taking some medicine over the counter stuff. It seems to be improving over the last couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that trend, you know, because yeah. And then, you know, the other Benny is you don't have to go through all the prep like you do with a colonoscopy. You know how you oh, know that's how that good. Is. Oh, that yeah. is horrible. I hated yeah. that. Right. I mean, it's a good weight loss, you know, regimen. Um, but it, it makes for a long night. Uh, but for an endoscopy, it's like, you don't have to do anything. Okay. Yeah. It's like, you just can't eat for like four hours in advance. Well, yeah. Because of that gag reflex shoved down your throat. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's no big deal. All right. Well, good luck with that. Uh, and for everyone listening right now, uh, you might want to, uh, go on Facebook and, you know, shoot Bob a little encouragement, some, some messages, you know, maybe a little, kitty cat hanging from a tree saying you know you got this or hang in there or whatever the case may be right right. yeah yeah that sounds about right you know it sounds it's funny i i had uh talk about being a handful um i back in eighth grade had to get some teeth removed Mm -hmm. and uh i was i was one of those um mutants that was born with uh uh, three sets of teeth oh, in in yeah. in two areas. Like oh, yeah. so, uh, on on the on my upper teeth, uh-huh. one on one side and one on the other side. For whatever reason, yeah, I had three of them. Wow! And so during an X-ray, they revealed this, and we're like, well, we we need to to pull you know the, these teeth so that the next ones come down. Yeah. And uh, I just probably just grossed a bunch of people out, but mm-hmm. anyway, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I go to the 
the uh, oral surgeon's office and they, of course, you know, they do the, the little gas thing, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, turns out, and again, Some people, eighth grade, yeah, uh, I'm probably 12 years old at this time. Uh-huh. Apparently, mm. I was very flirtatious with the <laughs> nurses. <laughs> <laughs> apparently uh, uh i was off uh, your third nipple i was uh, uh making a few uh oh, suggestive comments or come ons or uh wow. flirting with the uh now, who the took nurses. you to this appointment i i, I think my, my mom when did mom? you know okay but yeah. it was one of those things like you know they they take you out of the chair and they yeah. put you into a recovery room and you yeah. you and i guess you're semi quasi awake as, right? as they're Walking you into this room where you lay down, and I guess yeah. during that walk, I was like, "How you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and how did you hear about this behavior? Oh no, trust me, the nurses and the doctors told my mom. After, oh, okay, uh, that's the yeah. one I was trying so, to get at. So yeah. she, you know, they're she's driving me home, and I'm probably still loopy. But later that night, uh, yeah, at the dinner table, I I'm I'm sitting there and. Yeah, I, I hear she's telling the story uh, to my dad. Oh, He's laughing awesome. his ass off. <laughs> that's great. All right. Mm. Laughing gas at home. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, Bob, we have the last couple of weeks, we mm -hmm. have been covering panel by panel the Captain America, the Ghost Army. And um, it has been a lot of fun, uh, a nice... Uh, all ages graphic novel that's uh, produced by Marvel and Scholastic, and the uh, the last two episodes. And if, listen, if you haven't listened to the last two two episodes, one sixty three and one sixty four, check them out because we do go through the Ghost Army panel by panel, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun as we uh, we act that out and we give our our thoughts on it and everything. Uh, but today, Bob, today, very excited to have uh, the creators of uh, of that on the show today we have the writer alan gratz and illustrator brent schoonover and so we're very excited to to talk with them today yeah you know the thing is rick we uh we've been trying to land these two for a long time and you were finally able to get the job done and so i think this is going to be really interesting talk because um i know folks were really looking forward you know to this book coming out uh, there was a lot of uh, early concept art that had been published and was available um, and a lot of buildup to this book. And, uh, I, and I think it was well received. Um, but these guys have been on like endless speaking tours uh, promoting this book. Mm -hmm. And so they were very difficult to, uh, to land, uh, particularly together. But again, you managed to pull off the impossible yet again. Well, Bob, just remember, it's it's not who you know, it's who I know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna, let me write that one down. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to talk to talk to both of them. Um, we have lots of questions, uh, and uh, we should probably let them out of the green room. They've been pretty patient. Yeah, let's do that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So we're excited to bring on our next guest. Alan Gratz is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 19 novels and graphic novels for young readers, including Two Degrees, Ground Zero, Refugee, Allies, Prisoner B-3087, and Ban This Book. Brett Schoonover is an illustrator and comic book artist, having worked on such titles as Astonishing Ant-Man, Generations, Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel, Halle Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D., Batman 66, and more. Together, they created the graphic novel Captain America, The Ghost Army. That came out earlier this year in January 2023. We're excited to talk with both as we recently covered the story panel by panel the last two episodes. Alan and Brent, welcome. Thanks Hello, for thanks for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we're, we've been wanting to, ever since the book came out earlier this year, we've been uh, just dying to get you on, and, and we're glad you're finally here. Well, thanks. for It was awesome. Yeah, appreciate to have it. Us. Yeah. And, and, and Brent, I got to point out, you, you're wearing, uh, very similar, you're wearing the Captain America That's logo right. that I have on. <laughs> uh, is, is that your favorite time period of Captain America? And, and by the way, I'm going to say it's the red, white, and blue uh, logo that uh, we saw on the Cap comics. Yeah. I When I first kind of exposure to Cap was through a, a bunch of comics I got as a garage sale. And um, it was kind of that uh, mid 70s, late 70s kind of, um, you know, and they kind of switched that logo out around a little bit. But there was just some great comics in there. And I just the artwork. I mean, I always felt like Captain America is one of those kind of like Daredevil. They've always just had top tier talent on that book that's always Mm -hmm. able to like one up each other a little bit or um so yeah that just fell right in my wheelhouse and it was just i just remember reading those things over and over again till i almost were falling off but yeah this is my logo this is my cap era logo um i do love like the brubaker era where it was like the went to the really old old school one but Mm -hmm. to me this is the cap logo and i think we actually use the brubaker one uh for the book so but uh you know i would i would have loved to have seen this on there but uh yeah that's okay no, that's cool. That's very cool. And 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 I'm I'm looking at us. I think we're all roughly. You talked about you know in the in the 70s getting the comics. Mm-hmm. I think we're all roughly in that same age range. I got to tell you, so are a lot of our listeners. So uh, so not nice. not only or did you come to the right place uh, talking to Captain America fans, but you're talking to your people uh, <laughs> as far as uh, time period for the most part too. We we actually have all all different ages, but. Uh, so before we get into Ghost Army, uh, maybe the two of us could tell us a little bit about when your interest in comics started, and, and then also maybe a little bit of how you broke into working into the industry professionally. Yeah. I'll let you go, go first, it. Alan. Oh, we're, we're both still, okay. All right, so I'll, go, I'll go first. So, so my comic story is a strange one because my parents did not think that comics were uh, literature. So they never took me to the comic book shop despite my my many requests for them to do so uh and um i kind of picked up comics on the sly you know like trading toys on the uh, with you know <laughs> from neighbor kid you know to neighbor kids for their comics or or picking them up when i could i i had like this uh, i i think i had uh, um uh, an indiana jones comic that was number three of four and you know of a mini series and i never had one two or four mm. um i had 
I had a couple of random Micronauts comics. Um, I, you know, just whatever I kind of ended up with, uh, I would kind of hoard those and hide them, you know, in my closet. It wasn't like my parents were going to throw them out if they found them, but, but they just, my parents were always like, they wanted me to read the classics and they were always putting classic novels into my hands. And I had to kind of find the stuff that I really wanted to read on my own. It wasn't until uh, I got into college and my roommates had long boxes full of comics that I started really getting into back issues and reading, reading, getting caught up. So um, one of the people that I did you, did you finally guy, get the Raiders of Lost Ark one two and four? No, or? I don't. I, I've never <laughs> known. How, I don't know how it ends. I, I, hope he, I hope I hope Indy does okay. I don't know how it ends. So um, he died. No, I so uh, I, I remember the guy named Greg Bunch, and um, he had a huge collection of comics, and and had a weekly pull list all through co- all, all through college. And um, I would read his current comics that he was getting. This is back in the 90s. And, and I would read his back issues. And in fact, uh, he's the person that I dedicate Ghost Army to uh, because he's the guy who, who let me read all his comics. He's the, he's the collector who had the stacks and stacks, the, you know, the long boxes full of them. And, and I went back and, and got caught up. So in many ways, I feel like I'm always playing catch up. Um, you know, like I have the Marvel Unlimited app and every night before I go to sleep, I'm reading old comics still on mm-hmm. that app that they're that they're constantly, uh, you know, scanning and, and digitizing. Uh, yep. There, so you, you, he's he's got the book there, and and I've got nice. it dedicated to Greg Bunch, uh, who yeah. let me read his comics. Um, so my story was was coming to co- coming to comics. Um, uh, so I, I think maybe not having them as a kid made me even more desperate and more eager to get to them when I was uh, in college, you know, and, and, and made me really a diehard fan. That's, that's the lesson for any parent. If, as, as, <laughs> as soon as you tell your kid they can't do something, right. they're yeah. going to find a way to do it. Yeah. I was the same way with Playboys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brent, how Brent about you? I have a collection of those. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you get into comics? Um, it, it all really kind of came when Batman 89 hit and I was like in fourth grade, I think. And I'd always kind of seen Spider-Man and stuff on TV with cartoons and stuff, but I wasn't fully aware of comics. And, uh, when that hit, it was just like a craze of like, oh my God, this movie looks amazing. I really want to, you know, get more into comics and you would see comics that, you know, Walgreens and, you know, the, the mall bookstore and stuff, but I didn't really get any until we went on a road trip to wall drug, South Dakota, this little hole in the wall place. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's like this strip mall in the middle of South Dakota. And it's just, there's nothing else around. And they've done this like hokey promotion for it that like they have billboards for it in Japan. They have billboards for it in in middle and random places all over the world so it just is like, what is wall drug? And it's it's just a strip mall. There's nothing really <laughs> unique about it. But people come all over to see it. And uh, we stopped there on a trip on the way to Mount Rushmore when I was in fourth grade. Summer uh, Batman came out. And uh, they just they had a, a big spinner rack of comic books. And my dad knew we had a good couple hours left on the road trip. So he bought me and my brother a bunch of comic books from there. And I had a, got an Incredible Hulk issue from the Peter David run and I got a West coast Avengers and I got a silver surfer book. And I just was addicted right off the bat. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I want more of these. And I just reread them, reread them and then started like 
with drawing paper trying to redraw panels and stuff like that and the cool thing was was i still have those issues that i got from wall drug and then about two years ago we did a trip with our my two daughters and my wife to uh south dakota to do mount rushmore and we stopped at wall drug and they don't unfortunately have spinner racks anymore uh-huh. which things. but i did bring my two comics that i uh my comics oh, that, that is so have, cool and i got a picture with them outside so that was that was pretty cool so kind of bring it full circle i gotta tell you that's the that's the beautiful thing about still being in the comic book industry years and decades later yeah. is that nostalgia that it brings back yeah right you, you sure. can pick up something and it just takes you right back to, yeah. to that time period yeah i can't it's the things i can't remember that my wife wishes i remembered but yet i can grab an old <laughs> comic from like my collection and be like i bought that at this store when i was like 13 <laughs> and we were on a trip you know and i just remember that stuff so well but you know like i said if i if i could remember the honeydew list as well as i remember where i got some comic books i'd be doing a lot better probably <laughs> so. so so brent how did you break into the the professionally into comic books um Obviously, always just grew up love draw, love drawing. Uh, would draw, you know, from comics. You know, I'd have paper and I just try to recreate. I was always trying to get into Wizard Magazine with the uh, you know stuff that you could submit into that uh, in the '90s. Never got in, unfortunately. Um, just always was drawing, and I was really lucky that I had two parents who recognized that this was like more than just something I like to do. I love to do it, and they were very encouraging. And um, as I got older. And I was in high school and we were, I was like, okay, I think I want to go to art school. We started looking at schools and me and my brother took a road trip from, uh, I grew up in uh, Rockford, Illinois area. And we drove into Chicago to go to, before it was Wizard World, it was uh, Chicago Comic-Con. And we drove in there and we were just walking the aisles and uh, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design had a booth there and it was promoting their comic book program. And I was like, whoa, there's an art school that has a comic book program. And so I grabbed a bunch of information from it. And uh, we, my parents, over my junior year, I think Thanksgiving, we had a little break, fall break. And they drove me up to check out the school. And uh, I just fell in love with it. I was like, oh, this is what I want to do and where I want to go. And so I ended up going to what we call MCAD, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And uh, I went for... For illustration, a double majored in illustration and comic book illustration. And uh, I was taught by Peter Gross, who had a nice run on uh, Lucifer uh, for Vertigo um, for a long nice. time. And then uh, Barb Scholes, who was an inker on Micronauts forever, which goes back to <laughs> Alan. Shout out and, to the Micronauts. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I graduated and it, it took a while, but I did a lot of kind of like creator owned or indie books and, uh, you know, just kept sticking with it. And then about Oh, gosh, it was almost like eight years into it. I finally got some DC work, which was Batman 66. And once that kind of started, it's kind of funny. Once DC or Marvel hires you, it's like the other one sees that and they're like, oh, okay, we're good. And then you're you're kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit. So, uh, and yeah, I've just been doing it ever since. Uh, just too, too dumb to quit. <laughs> you know, no. uh, I just love it. I love telling stories. I love drawing them. Uh, I love being in my little studio bubble every day, getting to, you know, do my own thing. So, uh, yeah, so it's been, a, it's been a good run. That's cool. And, and so, yeah, it, just looking at your, 
of your list of of books that you've worked on, and I mentioned a few of them. Um, you know, it's really impressive that you, you're right. You've you've gone to going back and forth between Marvel and DC. Yeah, and it's cool to you know be working on such major characters. You know, like yeah. uh, that's that's fantastic. It's always uh, been cool at a certain times too, like getting to work on Ant Man when the movie Ant-Man came out, like if you were working on Ant-Man four or five years before, you'd be like, who did I make mad at Marvel? <laughs> right. Ant-Man gig? Or like getting to work on Suicide Squad at DC, like right as the, the first mm -hmm. movie came out, you know, that was just really cool timing to be able to kind of have those characters in your, you know, I guess your, your resume, you know, at the apex of when they were probably as, as big as they are ever going to get, you know? Mm -hmm. So Pretty cool. That's fantastic. Now, uh, so Alan, when you you've been a writer for uh, novels and 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 so on for doing and and mostly, I guess you're directed towards uh, kind of like a younger audience, right? Um, how did you break into graphic novels? Yeah, so um, I've been a professional writer now for about twenty years, and 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 only. Uh, like exclusively writing for for kids so i've got a couple of young adult novels that are for teenagers and up but most of my stuff has been for middle grade like ages eight to 14 i mean obviously people who are older than that read my books and 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 um and enjoy them too but like usually my characters are 13 14 years old and um the funny thing for me is so i wanted to be a writer since i was a kid i uh, you know like brent i i, I kind of had this this vision of what i wanted for for a long time, and um, I, I, were, I wrote stories all through middle school. I was the editor of the high school paper. Was on the literary magazine. Went to UT. Uh, that's the University of Tennessee for everybody listening in Texas. The other UT. Um, and um, I went to Tennessee to study creative writing, um, and and they taught me how to write, but not how to make any money at it. So mm -hmm. I graduated. I started doing a lot of other jobs that had to do with writing uh, or, or books while I wrote my stuff and sent it out. And actually, one of the first things I ever tried to do was to sell comics. I wrote up some comic scripts with original characters, and I went to um, the New York Comic Con, uh, which I think it was also Wizard World at, at some point, uh, maybe Brent, like, but, but I think maybe it was New York Comic Con back then, and now it is again. I, I can't remember. Anyway, I went to, I think, uh, maybe it was Wizard World when I went. But um, I remember going around to some of the booths and, and showing my scripts to editors at the different booths. Of course, you know, it, it's really hard to break in as a writer uh, yeah. without having any art to show because uh, I'm not an artist. And so yeah. it, it was, it's even harder to walk around booth to booth, but you know, I was, it, it, I was in my twenties. I didn't know any better. And, and I was desperate to kind of get in there. Um, but I remember just chatting with, this was back when they would have big time editors at the booths and you could just walk right up and Oftentimes they were there to look at the artist portfolios, but I think they were kind of um, charmed that a, that somebody was coming up with an actual script. They were like, "Oh, you 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 typed something up, and let me see it. Like, you know, I'll, I'll skim through it." Um, yeah. But nobody ever bought anything from me, and and then then I started submitting uh, kids books because my my wife was the the book and toy buyer for a group of independent bookstores at the time, and she started bringing home all these amazing books and saying, read this, read this, read this. I was like, oh my gosh, there's this renaissance happening in kids' books. And so I kind of set everything else aside and I started working on that and I got my foot in the door and now I'm 19 books into a, into a kid-lit career. And then the, the, the wonderful thing for me was I saw that Marvel and Scholastic were doing these 
graphic novels for young readers. And they were taking these Marvel characters. They, they did uh, Miles Morales, a Spider-Man. They mm -hmm. did a Shuri from Black Panther. They did Ms. Marvel. And I saw they were doing these and I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is like my dream to do comics. And it's with my publisher, Scholastic. So I called up my, uh, my agent and I said, how can we pitch me for one of these? And she said, let me talk to him. And she talked to him and she said, well, they want to know what character you'd want to do. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how do I choose what character I want to do? But then I realized, okay, wait a minute. It's got to be a, it's got to be a kid character or somebody young ish. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be somebody who had their powers when they were pretty young. So I couldn't do like Iron Man because obviously he gets, you know, he builds a suit when he's an adult, you know, you could do a Tony Stark as a kid, but and not he drinks the all the time. I know he's just <laughs> a drunk eighth grader. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. So, uh, no. And so I, I was already writing a ton of books about world war two. Uh, so I, w I was like, wait a minute, what if I pitched him a Captain America and Bucky Barnes fighting the Nazis in World War II? And I pitched it to my editor and she loved it and they pitched it to Marvel and Marvel loved it. And the next thing you know, I was writing a Marvel graphic novel, I was writing a Captain America mm -hmm. graphic novel. So, and it kind of came full circle for me because that's where I'd really started was taking comic scripts around uh, to, to at comic conventions and kind of you know, it, it just took me, you know, 18 or 19 novels to get there. <laughs> yep. so I, I've got a, I got a question for you, Alan, but I, but I got to yeah. go back to Brent because I have sure, to sure. know who, who Brandon is. Oh, uh, because we, you know, we know who Greg is now, Greg of the long yeah. boxes, but we don't know who Brandon is yeah. and why he won his name in a Marvel book. Okay. Uh, when I got to MCAD, my college, uh, I was really lucky. And uh, my first day there, uh, I fell in with a group of guys and, and stuff that I'm still, they're like my closest friends to this day. Like just met them at MCAD and Brandon and I really clicked. We were, we loved old horror movies. We loved certain things, you know, mu music like the same. And he, we loved comic books. And so he, he was a writer and he went to there for film and he kind of wanted to kind of be a filmmaker too, but he eventually, um, after we graduated kind of more focused on writing and we did a comic book together. It's a, a creator own thing called Horrorwood. It's like a love letter to like 1950s horror films and stuff. And um, unfortunately, Brandon, after that came out, I had some opportunities to do stuff and Brandon kind of didn't really keep going with comics. He ended up kind of, well, he ended up being a really good kid, a kid lit writer and he kept pretty busy with that. And unfortunately um, he died two years ago. Oh. He uh, mm. got cancer. He was about a year older than me. And uh, I, I just, he always wanted to work for Marvel. It was his dream. And unfortunately it never happened. And so, um, you know, I, I just, just felt like, you know, we got a book that we could dedicate and I felt he was on my, my mind a lot at that time yeah. while we were working on this book. And so, so that's where the dedication comes from for him. That, so. That's great. That's, I mean, that's a wonderful yeah, yeah. testament to it. Oh, thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Mom. I'm sure his family really appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Niagara Falls when her mom, his mom read that. So, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, so that. yeah. So, uh, Alan, I, I got to ask you, you now. You sort of you suggested that you had World War II on your mind because you had been, you know, working on some World War II stories. Yeah. But I, I want to know what the genesis was because I'm always fascinated by how that kernel gets started for a, a story that. It, you know, it's not a particularly complex story, but it has so many different threads 
Uh, and there's so many interesting threads. So I'm, I'm curious where the colonel started for the ghost army. Was it was it the location in uh, in Transia, this this area between <laughs> like Transylvania and Romania? Was yeah. it a desire to work in the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, aka the Ghost <laughs> Army? Yeah. Maybe an opportunity for a little horror, a chance to add uh, some characters from the pre-howling commandos or the Mordo <laughs> family angle. I mean, where did where was the colonel yeah. that this story got started with? Yeah, you, you've got it. It was the ghost army itself. So having done a lot of research about World War II to write all the different novels that I've, that I've written, I've come into contact with a lot of different little uh, pieces of trivia about World War II or really interesting stories, some of which I'm still sitting on and, and I haven't found a way to work into a novel. Because I write books that are, have kid protagonists, I, I, I struggle sometimes when I find a really cool thing and I'm like, well, there's no kids. You know, like, how do I tell a story yeah. about a, a B-57 bomber crew when there's no kids on the bomber? There shouldn't be, right? You know, and I don't write, I don't write, like, uh, stuff where, like, oh, it's the one kid who got to serve on a bomber when there weren't any kids who ever got to serve on bombers. So, like, I, I always try to write my books within the realm of possibility. They're fiction, but they, but they still are within the realm of possibility. And um, so I, I'd read about the Ghost Army. So the Ghost Army was a real army unit. And they were, uh, you know, back when you were drafted, they would ask you to fill out all the stuff that you were good at, you know, just so they could pull you out and use you if, the, if you had a language that they could use somewhere or a, or a talent in the motor pool. Like if you worked on cars, they put you in the motor pool. But sometimes they would take the those stats and they would say, well, this person was a writer or this person was a musician or a sound designer or a stage magician. Sometimes they would pull these creative types out and they put them into this unit called the ghost army and their job was to trick the enemy. They made inflatable tanks that they set out in fields so that German spy planes would think we had more tanks. They made, um, you know, like fake planes that they would set out in fields or, or fake artillery. Uh, they recorded the sound effects of armies on the march and then put these huge uh, speakers on the top of half tracks and, and trucks, kind of like the Blues Brothers driving around, you know, <laughs> with their big speaker on the top of their car and, and like drive past villages and play these sound effects so that people would think we had more, more soldiers in an area uh, than we did. They would set up fake tents with fake laundry and, and fake, you know, campfires and everything. And they were really adept at tricking the enemy into thinking that we had more troops in, in places that we didn't. And I desperately wanted to get this into a book and i couldn't i was like but the kid wouldn't be in the in the mm. ghost army would it just be like a french kid who meets them while they're fighting in europe and i, I never could yeah. find a great way to integrate it and make it really exciting so when i got the gig to to write for cap in world war ii i was like oh wait a minute i've got this ghost army angle i'll bring that in and because it's a comic book then it automatically led to the idea that there's a second ghost army. There's a, there's a literal one, the U.S. Mm -hmm. ghost army, and then there is this figurative one, or maybe mm -hmm. maybe it's the other way around. They, because they literally are ghosts. That so you know right. th th that that led to the idea that the that the Nazis are resurrecting old dead soldiers to be a new ghost army to to fight the Allies. Um, and from that point on, like I didn't I didn't have an idea for who my villain was going to be. I definitely wanted to pull in a supervillain. I wanted somebody from the Marvel universe to be, to be the villain of the story and not just the Nazis, you know, um, because I wanted to have a, somebody with some superpowers to, you know, that, that was comp, you know, that, that was worthy of cap fighting them. Um, and uh, 
So it was really a conversation that I had with the folks at Marvel, where when I was first pitching them my idea just for a ghost army story, and we were talking things out, um, I said, so can, do I, am I limited only to caps? Uh, like, like mm. uh, rogues gallery is, mm -hmm. if you will, you know, like his, his typical villains are like, no, anything and everything use anybody from any time at any place in Marvel comics. And uh, I was like, okay, uh, then I'm going to, I'm going to go for some faves. And that's where we get Baron Mordo yeah. coming in and, you know, it gets some magic in there. And then the monster angle, like it just, it was, it was just entirely, it was just really incredibly fortunate that like Brent loves monster stuff. Like Brent is like a horror, <laughs> tell, yeah. his, his horror stuff is amazing. He just sent out a, a, a like an eight pager or something like that around Halloween yeah. in his newsletter. That was really awesome. Like original stuff that was at the burial brothers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was great. And he loves oh, yeah. doing monster stuff and, and, and horror. And it just, it was perfect. Cause I ended up writing in a whole bunch of the classic Marvel monsters and Brent really went to town on those. So <laughs> it was it was kind of like the, the 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 real history of the ghost army led me to creating a, a, a literal ghost army of your resurrected uh, soldiers. And then I was like, well, who's going to have the magic ability to do that? And that's how I got to Mordo. All right. Yeah. So I, I have to follow up on that because it was really fun to see all the monsters. And uh, and I say monsters, I'm going to put those in quotes. <laughs> right? right for yeah. for those right. uh who read the story they didn't understand that um right. and so we're treated to fang fang foom uh man thing yeah it looks like somebody who's like sauron uh yeah. we got yeah. the the marvel zombie which was simon garth many others right. so right. were all these were every single one of these that we saw were they written into the story or did or did you, Brent, did you have some leeway to add some of the characters you thought would fit the story? Uh, that was pretty much open-ended. I think I don't think you had written any specific characters in there. You just I think I said I think I said originally, like I gave a few yeah. and said, like, I want I want to pull in as many Marvel monsters, you know, but but you know, the horror characters as possible. Yeah. But that gave Brent a lot of room to pull in some faves. Yeah. And then I got very Marvel horror nerd and was like continuity <laughs> conscious and so we had right. like all of the editors and i'm like well simon gart didn't show up until this you know and, and, and yeah. everybody was like you know what these are like holograms so like let's just have fun with it and not worry about you know continuity and stuff and so once i got the oh, I go ahead from the powers of b to just be like yeah. whatever i was like yeah, all right here we go yeah and so you know i was just throwing in anything i could you know think of at the time and you know, whatever kind of went in my head. So it was like, all right, we're going to do this guy. We're going to do this thing. And it, it was so much fun. Yeah. It was, I so, loved it. So. so so based on what Alan was saying about how much you, you love doing monsters, was this, this must've been a treat for you to add these classic creatures when you thought you were just doing a, a World War II story. Yeah, for sure. And I kind of like knew, you know, that was going to fall in because the first chapter alone, you got some uh some ghost you know you got ghost soldiers and stuff like that and ghost armies and zombies and obviously there's kind of like with the you can't really go too deep like wasn't going to be drawn like brains or anything like that coming out or anything too grotesque but at the same time i knew instantly we were going to go into a little bit of a horror slant which was really fun uh but yeah that was you know obviously where that's kind of the beginning of the third act of the story so it was just like was cool to do that one because it was like we were on the home stretch of the book when we started doing that 
And um, it was just a really fun way to kind of get into that home stretch of the book that we were almost done. And it was just, you know, you've been drawing these same other characters for a while and stuff like that. So they're kind of like the last new characters you get to reintroduce in the book. And uh, so that was kind of a refresher and stuff. So, but yeah, just had an absolute blast doing it. And and uh, monsters are a lot more fun to draw, I take it, than tanks and helmets and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I, I, and right? Can I, confirm. Can I, confirm. I do. I do want to get into that. I do want to get into that. But you brought up something an, an interesting point. Um, you know, you were in the the act act three or act four, and you're 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 you've been drawing these other characters for a long time. When we have guests on the show. I kind of have an idea in the back of my mind that a monthly book they're doing a monthly, right? They're, the illustrator yeah. is taking a month to do each one of these books. How many, I, I didn't look at how many pages there were in this book, but you know, and so how many pages were in this book and how long did it take you to illustrate the entire thing? Uh, it was 150 and uh, we, we took about a year. It was a, it was a tough book. Um, you know, no, there was, I think Scholastic and Marvel kind of had a, an idea in their head of what it was going to take. And then I think we kind of got realizing once we got into this and like so many pages had World War II tanks and there was just a lot of stuff to it. And we were, I, I'm not, this good. The, the other books that in this line of Scholastic books were done in a style that was, you know, the Miles Morales one is kind of like, if you done in the style of uh, the Spider-Man animated movies that have been coming out. And I'm not saying that that's easier to do, but I think there's a process that you can do to speed that up where this was kind of done in a traditional, like, I, I want to say, like, I, I think my art kind of is like, kind of like a throwback style and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It looks more like a classic Marvel comic you probably read in the seventies and eighties or nineties and stuff. And so it just, it took a little bit longer than those other books did. And so we did have a little bit more of a longer time than those guys did. And we did have a couple artists kind of help it out on a few pages here and there. But uh, yeah, I think the whole thing for me took about 10 months to do. And so um, I'm super proud of it. I think it turned out really good. Um, and, and it was, you know, there was a lot of challenging, fun stuff. Alan did not hold back. It was grand, <laughs> uh, a lot of stuff. I mean, I look back and I think a lot of pages on regular had about 10 or 12 characters, you know, with soldiers and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, it's and, an epic. And Brent was, and Brent was drawing like, like backgrounds that where, where we had, we had editors who were very interested in making sure it was historically accurate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since we were presenting World War II, even though it is the fantasy world of the Marvel universe, you've, you know, it, it's, it's got all these, these, these superhero characters and we make allusions to other characters in the Marvel universe. And you pointed out it's in transit. It's not even in a real country, you know, like not, you know, not our real world. So even though it's all fantasy, we still wanted it to feel real. We wanted it to feel like it really happened in world war two. And so, you know, Brent's drawing, making sure that the tanks are appropriate to the time and the place when we were drawing like the, 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 um, the, the, the Maximoff house, he was talking about, do we put a sewing machine in the back or what would the sit, would they have a sink or would they have water outside that they got from a pump? Like we were asking yeah. questions like that. That's, you know, that necessarily slow things down. It, it, it wasn't just like a, oh, here's a random uh, computer lab 
in yeah. the background mm-hmm. and and we could just move on we were worried about the clothing that they were that everybody else was mm-hmm. wearing besides cap and yeah. bucky and and of course the uniforms that cap and bucky were wearing a lot of time and thought went into that and brent can <laughs> talk about that i know but but just for the for the outfits the the clothing that the the non-hero characters were wearing we yeah. were trying to be as accurate as possible we, we had a big conversation about whether or not Sophia should be wearing a dress or pants when she, when they go out adventuring and um, you know, like, or like a skirt uh, or, or pants. We eventually went with pants because Brent was like, it's going to be easier to draw her climbing a mountain if she's wearing pants. And we, <laughs> we were like, yeah. would a woman really have worn pants at this time? We, we had a lot of kind of more in-depth conversations and, and yeah. about the little stuff like that, that I think a lot of people don't, wouldn't yeah. expect to go into a comic book like this yeah we got lucky too one of our editors was really great about um historical clothing and stuff like that she so makes she, her own his like yeah. like she does costuming that's historically based so i mean one of the things i noticed because i'm a i'm a big history buff um and so i always sort of hone in on uh real world history and and, and you and you know and you said it was, it's in a fake country right with fake characters but you want to make it historically accurate and there's a lot of call outs to real world history there's the japanese internment during world war ii mm-hmm. there's the battle world war one battle of brasso there's peewee reese even the ghost army <laughs> itself right and yeah. and i have to wonder like uh, and i think i know the answer here like how intentional that was particularly since this is a publication uh between scholastic and marvel for younger audiences right for me it's really important uh, look uh, all of my books are novels and so they they take a fictional character I, I drop a fictional character into a real world situation and so if i'm writing about d-day I want to write my own character and and write things that didn't happen to a real well I there that wasn't a real person but I always want to try and find things that 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 would have happened to a real person in that situation and especially when I'm writing about a real event like D-Day which I did in Allies then I'm taking things that really happened to people and then fictionalizing those and so it was already part of my DNA to come into this and say well, that World War One battle that I refer to, these ghosts that are popping up that are World War One soldiers, that's a real battle. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was sending Brent pictures of of Brasov, like a real town. And yeah. I was like, I was like, here's here's the real town that I'm talking about. Like, if, if you can repro- reproduce that, that'd be awesome. And and like I actually looked part of the the, the mythology, uh, part of the fantasy of this is that ghosts can't cross water. You know, it's it's a it's it's a thing from some traditions of of, of ghost stories, and moving water, and so I actually looked for a town that didn't have a river in it. So like, it's a real mm-hmm. town that really doesn't have a river, so that they don't have a river to cross to just hide away from the the ghosts. So there were a lot of very deliberate decisions like that. You're absolutely right. So yeah. that if you if you're a kid and you go and you Google or check out Wikipedia about one of these real things that I've dropped in there, you're likely gonna find out the real story behind it. And then the same way is if you look up the Maximoff family and you're like, boy, that name rings a bell. And then you find out, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, here's all those Marvel characters that are associated with the Maximoff family, right? And so there there were Marvel Easter eggs and then you could really say that there were real history Easter eggs as well. How about, uh, I got to ask you, I mean, it, two things. One is uh, you talk about kids Googling, right? And, and I will admit that I Googled some of those things because, <laughs> uh, and then that's got to be, I mean, that's like a, when you're into a story, that's yeah. an indicator right there that you want to know more about what the story is telling you. So kudos. I do it all the time to, myself. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, the second thing is uh, Pee Wee Reese. 
right? You could have picked any number of, uh, of, of legendary baseball players from, uh, from the forties, but you picked Pee Wee Reese. And I wonder uh, if there was a particular reason why you did, he was a pretty stand-up guy. Uh, yeah. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. Uh, Brooklyn. Uh, I mean, the Brooklyn connection and, you know, uh, caps from Brooklyn and, and mm-hmm. um, I know it's Bucky that makes the reference, mm-hmm. but, but I, I love that, that New York feel that so many Marvel comics have. And that, you know, like when, when Cap runs into Spider-Man and, and Spidey's like, I'm from Queens. He's like, Hey, I'm from Brooklyn. You know, like it's two New Yorkers and just in costumes and, and, you know, and, and, and fighting mm-hmm. baddies. And, and I, and I really liked that. And I, I, I love the, the Dodgers. Um, uh, I, I grew up a Reds fan. I, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee and looked North to the, to the Reds. Cause my dad was a big Reds fan growing up uh, for himself back during the, uh, the big red machine. But then, uh, so my weird story is about baseball that that because I'm in because I was in Tennessee and now in North Carolina, the the Reds actually claim both states as their territory, and so I can't watch the Reds on television where all their games are blacked out because they think hmm. I'm going to drive eight hours to Cincinnati to go and watch a game. So <laughs> I was like, well, I can't watch the Reds anymore, and and so I actually wasn't watching baseball all night, and I would wait till my family went to sleep. And I would turn on the West Coast games at 10 o'clock and I started watching the Dodgers years and years ago, back when Vin Scully was doing the announcing. And I just became a Dodgers fan. And that led me to reading about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I wrote a book called The Brooklyn Nine early in my 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 novels uh, that's about uh, Brooklyn baseball. And so I had to I had to throw in. Pee Wee Reese from the Dodgers and the, and, right. and that whole connection. In yeah. There. Well, yeah. I mean, he was, I, mean, I say he was a stand-up guy yeah. <clears throat> because, you know, back when Jackie Robinson was going to join the, the right. Dodgers, he was one of those guys that refused to, to sign a petition uh, against, and, yeah. against him joining the team. And in fact, I think the first day that Jackie Robinson played, he walked over to him on the field and shook his hand. And a lot of people point to that moment as the, the moment that it gave all the fans permission to love Jackie Robinson because they loved Pee Wee Reese. And if Pee Wee Reese loved him, then they had to love him too. And that was a huge moment for, I mean, it's just a, it's just a great moment in sports. And, and uh, so yes, a very deliberate uh, choice because he's a stand-up guy and I, I always like making, you know, if I'm going to throw in a, a quickie baseball reference, it's going to be to somebody I like, not somebody who's a jerk. <laughs> you know, that's a great story. And look at you, Bob. I'm so I'm so excited that you actually had a sports <laughs> reference. Uh, this is a market calendar. Is, yeah, <laughs> this is, this is going to go down as historic. Uh, it, it, I appreciate you doing that research, Bob. That's that's awesome. So, Al, this is a, just a quick question for you. And then uh, I got a follow up for Brent. There were a lot of fun little Easter eggs throughout the story. So uh, just a, a few were like Bucky wishing he had a super powered hand. Thank you for noticing. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, mentioning the government might put he and Cap on ice after the war. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cap saying, quote, strange stuff. We need a sorcerer <laughs> like that on our side. Yes. Uh, you know, was it fun writing a story that had so much history where you could make playful nods to what was to come? Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, there's a point where um, Bucky and Sophia are climbing uh mount wundagore which is itself uh, another yeah. reference and yeah. they uh, she says oh this mountain's got all kinds of weird stuff like yeah uh, you know, like the uh, the magic wood that that's from mm-hmm. you know a, a guy who makes puppets that come to life from the magic wood and the, I, I think i mentioned i think i get into like the the high evolutionary is gonna 
yeah at the, the talking you know the, the cow they somebody says she says oh there's like a legend of a talking cow and that's you know from the high evolutionary um and and you know aliens or something underneath the pl- anyway that that mountain's been used anytime marvel needed yeah. something weird to happen in <laughs> eastern europe yeah. mount wondegore comes out so i made a ton of references so this goes back to that early phone call with marvel and i said i said what can i put in and what can i not put in and um they said go to town on the easter eggs go to town on the references and the illusions they said the only thing you can't do is use the movies it has to be the mm-hmm. comic book continuity and i was like that's nice. cool i've read tons of comics that's great so all of the all of the easter eggs are stuff that comes from the comics they, they may have been mirrored in the movies in some way you know obviously you know bucky and the winter soldier in the films as well mm-hmm. but um but i always made sure that they were they had comic antecedents um i had a ton of fun with that and 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 if, at some point i was like is this too much and they were like no no we love it because what it is is um you know some of those may go right over the heads of the young readers mm-hmm. but for right. you guys for us for the for the for those of us who've who've grown up reading these comics or or read a ton of them at some point in our lives those references we're going to catch and get a chuckle out of but my my challenge as well was to tell a story where if this was your first captain america book you've ever picked up you're not lost you, yeah. you're going to learn who cap is you're going to learn who bucky is you're going to learn what they do and how they do it and 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 you can you can pick it up and it can be your first experience with captain america and so the the always none of those illusions ha, none of the they they couldn't be load-bearing walls if yeah. that makes any sense like they 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 had to be things that that were just there for fun but didn't you, you didn't have to know them to understand yeah. the plot yeah that's a lot like uh like watching the simpsons right yeah. uh i think a lot of kids you know get that but the, the adults get some of the the comments yeah. right and the right. humor stuff like that right so, disney's so, disney's done a great job of this with their kids movies that's true they put in some they put in some jokes yeah. for the adults they know that the parents are bringing their kids to the movies and mm-hmm. they put in a couple of jokes every now and then for us and and so that was me doing the same for a parent who maybe wants to share this captain america book with their kid and say like i love captain america let's read this book together and both get something out of it mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brent, um, how about for you w- with Easter eggs? Sometimes illustrators like to, to to throw something in there in the background. Uh, did you did you get a chance to do any of that? Uh, not. I mean, the the monster thing was like my chance to really go nuts and kind of do something where it's like, oh, I can throw in, you know, Bing Fang Foom or I can do the monster Frankenstein and stuff. So that was like my my big opportunity to kind of play with that kind of stuff. Um, I think I did kind of maybe model a couple of those uh, money shots of the the Nazi soldiers uh, after a few of my friends, but you know, my friends are like, I don't know if I really want to be a Nazi. You know, my chance to sort of sneak friends in there kind of, I've done that before in the past, but in this book, every, every main good character is pretty, uh, pretty well spoken for. So, uh, you know, they usually they're fine with being a a criminal of some sort, but no one wants to be a Nazi. Nobody wants to be a Nazi. No, no. about um, that. I think there was there's a few spots though where I think it was like uh there's a village attack scene where the knights uh the reanimated knights mm-hmm. come to town and there's a really fun page where like I just pulled a pose like a Jack Kirby pose because I just you know I had Captain America books laying around you know and stuff and there's just 
stuff with the Jack did that I was like, oh man, that's cool. And uh, just one, I think I he, Captain America's leaping into action, and I just kind of I kind of stole the Jack Kirby pose from a from a cover or something like that. I couldn't tell you which one it was, but just on a whim, I was like, that that's the perfect pose for this page. And so there was a little bit of that and stuff like that that I kind of did. Um, you know, I kind of it's funny. I, I hate drawing that chainmail stuff. I just <laughs> love Captain America, but. I was like, I am not drawing that chainmail, and so I kind of pulled from like Chris Somney's run. Yes, like, I, like I, I'm so run. glad you said that because yeah, I you got to ask him now. Art. He did a lot of real thoughtful stuff on the costume. I, I looked at this art, and one of the things that came to me was this reminiscent of Chris Somney. Totally oh. not John Cassidy, right? Because yeah. of the chainmail, right? But yeah, no, yeah. I totally saw Chris Samney in this. I'm so glad well, you mentioned that. Well, thank you. I have, Chris is a friend of mine, and he's one of my favorite artists uh, in comics today. And his run on Cap was, you know, not long enough for me. He's had a couple short stints, but I loved what he did. And it was him, and it was Mike Zeck, and it was John Byrne. And there's just been these guys who have drawn it, and they've made it look cool, and they've given the illusion of his chainmail without drawing every little one like Cassidy and all these other guys. I just, to me, uh, for whatever I do, it just feels like it make it stiffens that drawing. I, I remember trying to do it at the beginning because I've drawn cat before, but I've never drawn him in it. I drawn him in a few spots. I drew him in Ant-Man a little bit. And I just, I was like, man, I just hate, this is not, this isn't jiving with me. And so I, I just kind of found my own way of like cross hatching and doing stuff that, I, I don't want to say I swiped it, but I just kind of, it, through osmosis, I just sort of saw how some of these guys who didn't draw it that way did it. And I was like, oh, I like that because it's it's more fluid. And it also goes back to the comic books of the 40s and stuff like that, that we were kind of putting them in. They weren't drawing all that chain mail either. And so right. I was like, yeah, you don't have to do it that way. It's a pure, they don't have to peer <laughs> pressure me into doing that. So. <laughs> so, all right. Well, yeah. speaking of peer pressure. so. Um, Bob and I have a debate on something, and I'm curious where you stand. Mm -hmm. uh, which arm does Cap normally hold his shield? Ooh. And, and and is this just something simply known, or does editorial request it? I never got a note about what hand, unless the only time I ever got is if he had it in one hand and then uh, you screwed up and you put it in the other, the next panel. And obviously he wouldn't have switched it yet. But in terms of, of that, it's funny because I had the same question when I first started and I was like, I'm assuming he's a righty, but then you start going through books and you realize, Oh my God, everybody's just whatever works for that panel. If you want it to flow a certain way, I've got to just assume Steve Rogers is ambidextrous when it comes to throwing that shield. <laughs> and it's just, he can do it righty. He can do it lefty. It doesn't matter. And uh, I will totally own up to the fact that I totally just, whatever I wanted the panel flow to be, I was like, well, he's throwing it with his left in this one. And he's throwing <laughs> it with his right in the other. And so, um, I would, I would have said, I would have said that he always wears it on his left arm. Not always. I mean, like you said, they, they are different yeah. artists have done whatever they want. I would have said default left to punch with the right. Yeah. But like yeah. you said, I always kind of saw him as a righty. Um, but but you also see those, those those times when he's using it like a like a club, like he's got it on his right arm and he's slamming it into somebody or some robot mm -hmm. or something and smashing it. Um, but I would have said 
shield on the left, punch with yeah. the right. It is funny too because he he throws his shield a lot in this book yeah. because yeah. of the way the the zombies are you know their wind they, the best way to fight them is through wind so he's doing a lot of trying to create motion and stuff mm-hmm. and so there is a lot more he's doing a lot less smashing with it than he is yeah. whipping it around so i was trying to do a lot of different stuff with the shield you know like there's so much of just like banging it off of stuff or or the you know the classic sort of just knocking somebody out with it um but i i really tried to think outside the box with the shield and you know waving the ghosts away when the when you throw the shield at them it goes right through them so maybe you can dissipate them you know that sort of thing and and um mm-hmm. so i tried to tried to find some different ways to use it i use it as a um you know a, a way to to uh, um shield himself from an explosion but also to launch himself into the air by putting it underneath that himself. was a cool and, scene I, thanks. I, I i it was a little I I think we could do that in the comic, but not not in the movies type of scene, yeah. right? Like that. Maybe that, yeah, that, yeah. It was. It, it you was, had to uh, have the step by step, and and I even drew it out with stick figures so I could show Brent what I was talking about because I felt like I couldn't. It was hard to describe it on the page, and um, so I drew this really lame picture of you know the the of Cap a stick figure Cap throwing his shield down at this <laughs> little toy truck and it, you know bouncing up an explosion. Um, and and Brent always was able to make it look amazing, and and you know from my little um, from my little doodles <laughs> if I ever had to. Um, no, well, I don't know. Work. Where do you guys where do you guys fall on the shield question? Then what's your what are your opinions? Well, I I think Cap is is ambidextrous. I think he may mm. normally hold it on right. his left, but he right. can work either way and operate. He can punch just as effectively with his left hand as he can has to be, right, yeah. and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, I, I and I agree with Bob. I, I I think he's ambidextrous, and he normally does keep it on his left. Yeah, uh, I think he, um, I think he is typically right-handed. So if he was going to write something, he would write with his right hand, or you know, mm-hmm. eat or something like that. But as far as when he drew comic books, he would draw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think when he was fighting, I think I think Steve is one of those guys who who's constantly training. Right. He mm-hmm. always wants to, to be ready. He always wants to be prepared. He wants to be his peak performance. So I think he trains just as much with his left side because he wants to be prepared if something happens to his sure. right side. And yeah. so he wants to be able to throw that shield with the left hand just as much as he throws it with the right hand. So I think I think with the shield, he's ambidextrous. I think in general, he's he's a righty. But I think the most important question that the listeners want answered, Alan, is did you practice those moves with your shield as you were <laughs> developing them in your mind? Yeah, Brent, Brent, before we got on here, I told him I, I've got I've got that metal shield. And you do. Um, I, I have to admit, I, I have pretended to be Steve Rogers and and, uh, I knew and, it. and fought and, and fought some uh, some ghosts uh, and, and other villains. Did you wave um, them away with their shield? I, no, I, no. For me, it's always it, it, I only fight things I can punch and, and hit because that's the fun okay. part. Um, but I will say that I did. There is a sequence that I drove Brent crazy with, I'm sure, where um, Bucky and Sophia are sparring oh, while yeah. a conversation is happening. And I was really like descriptive of they she blocks like this and then she does this and then flips him over like this and and I actually I actually got up in my office and stood up and 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 tried to work out how the moves would be mm. like in in writing those to describe them because I wanted it to be something that when I handed it off to Brent was like 
something that that you could you could show panel by panel mm-hmm. the sequence of events. It's it still was kind of an, I'm sure it was a nightmare because it was me trying to describe physical action. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I ended up sending you a video of somebody doing it, didn't I? Like that flip um, that they. Yeah, you did. You did. Yeah, wow. yeah. I finally, I just finally was like, somebody on YouTube's got to have done this attack and flip, <laughs> and I and I found somebody doing it and said, here, tr- tr- see if you yeah. can break this into four panels. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, next time, just reach out to Bob. You know, he was a oh. lifetime uh, uh, marine. Oh, nice. There you go. Yeah, not not lifetime. I, I'm out now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. No, he's still alive. You, yeah, I'm still alive. I'm not <laughs> they, in the they, never you. they never oh, lose you. Was, but it was 25 years. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was a career, 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 marine. career. Yeah, that's career, what yeah. I should have said. How about we do yeah. that? There you go. So I, I got to ask Alan. Uh, so explain and explaining the ghost arm. You, ha- you have the character Jim Morita. He's explaining the right. ghost arm. I think it's like on page 20 or something. And, yep. and he explains that. And, and you said this. They recruited musicians and painters right. and fashion designers, stage musicians. And then he says even a couple of comic book artists. And I have to know because <laughs> uh, I didn't see that in my research. Was that a creative license or maybe a tongue in cheek nod to uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby? Well, actually, it was a reference to Stan Lee. Uh, Stan Lee was not in the Ghost Army, but he was recruited by the Army to do um, instructional videos or, or instructional films uh, at the time. Uh, and I think I think he and um, who else? Uh, I think uh, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, was in mm-hmm. on this group as well. And they found some creatives who who were skilled in getting information across to uh to a wide audience and yeah. i think i think stan lee was in on that and 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 dr seuss and i think there was there's somebody oh uh frank capra who directed it's a wonderful life and other films of course uh was involved in making those films so it it, it wasn't it wasn't uh it, it was a little it was a it was a little bit of a joke because stan lee had not been in the in the, the ghost army but they did pull other people out like that who and stan had been making comics before before the mm-hmm. war, and sure. um, and of course Jack Kirby did serve, but not uh, in any kind of capacity as an artist. Um, and um, a- and in fact, I think he deliberately didn't talk about that on his yeah. information that he submitted because he he really just wanted to go fight. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that by, by the time the United States finally entered the war in in 1941, you know, World War II had already been going since 1939, and uh, Kirby and Simon created. Captain America before we were in World War II. Right. Like you guys know this, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but like th- th- those, those comics started coming out as, as almost propaganda to say like, we should be fighting Hitler. Like mm-hmm. we know what he's doing to the, to the Jews in Europe. We should be, we know what he's doing to our allies. We should be in this fight. Mm-hmm. And it, it, before Pearl Harbor, that opinion was so unpopular that when these guys made their comics with with Cap punching out Hitler on every cover almost, yeah. um, th- there were people who gathered outside the Timely Comics office and protested these guys. And uh, the mayor uh, of New York at the time, uh, LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia, was sympathetic. He also believed we should be in the war. And he put police outside the Timely Comics offices to protect these guys so that they could keep keep making their comics and not get hurt. Um, so no, I, I I did I did want to talk. You know, there were there were a whole lot of comic creators who served in World War II, um, not in the Ghost Army, but I did want to kind of make a quick 
kind of allusion to that, to uh, to some of the more famous ones who who'd done that. Um, and then famously, sort of after the war, Kirby would draw all kinds of of guns. Like he he drew, I think, on the Howling Commandos for a while, and um, the uh, the uh, the the guns that he drew were not realistic. And finally, somebody came to him and they were like, Jack, you these guns they don't look like any real guns. He's like, I don't care. Yeah, he's like, I don't have to draw guns like they really look. Get out of here! Like <laughs> they're like, okay, yeah, you're you're Jack Kirby, you're right. You don't. Know, sorry, draw nineteen <laughs> books a month. I don't have time. I know he's like, yeah. they don't have to look like real guns. Get out of my face. So so Brent, that you know, if you, if you get to the level of Jack Kirby, then mm -hmm. we we won't make sure those helmet those helmets. Get over, get over the research. The research those those German helmets were bedeviled you. I know they, they were. Did. They they tricked me. They, they stumbled me on the get go. I yeah. just they have a funky shape to them that I just took me a while to get to them. So yeah. but, uh, so yeah. Brent, uh, you know, talking about it, what type of research did you have to do to make sure the military equipment, the the uniforms, the vehicles were representative of that time? Well, think I just go back and I think of any like he was saying like with jack you know it's like how, how did he have reference for all these guns and stuff like that thank god we have google now and uh i have to tell you our editorial team was super awesome right when the get-go when we started the book they had already found a bunch of reference for stuff for me that they just had a a, a pdf folder of a bunch of stuff that was all itemized for certain things clothing tanks and stuff like that um so that was great. Alan was awesome uh, with reference. Uh, he'd have links in the script that I could click on. So that really sped the process up. And then two, it was just a Google search of like, you know, certain areas and then, you know, um, clothing and stuff like that. So there was a, it was the, definitely the most reference heavy book I've ever done. Mm -hmm. But like, thankfully we had a really awesome team of people who kind of had to help prep all that for me so it was kind of right there when I got started um and then yeah just a lot of questions and stuff we we were really good about the layout stage when I did layouts that um you know I'd send them back to a marble and then Alan would look at them and then people at Scholastic would look at them and we would get a kind of a pdf back with like certain things of like you might want to look at this and there would be a link in there that was great so um you know it was a lot of work but it really with everybody kind of chipping in on that it didn't really slow the process down at all so um yeah so it was it was good i got really used to drawing a lot of that uh different trucks and tanks and stuff like that for sure so <laughs> enough half yeah. tracks for the rest of your life yeah yeah right <laughs> alan i love the way that you've added backstories to two i think anybody could argue minor characters in in uh in in the canon right uh Two that came from the mid 1960s: Jim Morita, who appeared in Sergeant Fury 38, and Anthony Baskerville, who showed up in Strange Tales 135. And both of them maybe had been in three or four books after that, and then never heard of again. And then you created Andre and Sophia Maximoff. Maybe these are previously unknown, distant relatives of uh, of Wanda and Pietro. Um, and I, I personally love when uh, authors give more depth to some of these overlooked characters. Is it rewarding for you as a writer to be able to leave that sort of stamp on canon? Because, I mean, once it's there, it's there, right? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, and I think that's one of the real joys of playing in a sandbox like Marvel's. There are so many creators over time who have created mm -hmm. so many characters and worlds and uh, and settings and, and adventures. And you can go back to those and you can say, wow, here's this character from the 60s that get, gets mentioned like once 
twice, three times maybe, mm -hmm. and then totally discarded. And if you if you love that character, you can take that character and you can really expand on on him or her. You can delve into their backstory. You know, it was again really important to me that nobody's evil in this just to be evil. I mean, the Nazis they're evil, so th that was pretty easy. <laughs> but of all the Mar Marvel characters, like I I talk about Mordo's motivation and and pull in his actual story about his father being killed by his grandfather and how he seeks revenge for that. And, and mm -hmm. these are, a Crowler is a real character, you know, from, from, from Dr. Strange comics. And, yeah. um, and, and the, the Baskerville character is also a, a real old character from, from Dr. Strange. And, and I, so I wanted to take those and, um, and, and, and dive into those a little bit more and say, here are these, these tiny little, mentioned characters that got mentioned a few times and i want to pull them in and build them into my story and get to play with that backstory i love it and i think that's the best part of being in 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 a sandbox like this is you can build on the work of other people you can you can take what they've done and run with it and then you can also say oh this little thing that you left behind i want to jump in and expand on that so yeah i put the maximoff reference in because we're on mount wandagore and there's all <laughs> right. that stuff about wander and pietro and so like like maybe they're really you know they they got the same last name they got to be related in some way to them are they you know are they grandparents or something like that or aunts or uncles i don't know but they got the same last name and they came from the same area right i yeah. i'll leave that for the next author to say like i'm going to yeah. take that character that alan created of andre maximoff and build on him some more like make tell a story about him as a young man you know he's an older man when we meet him in this book so um yeah. I totally love that, and and uh, the other thing was that uh, um, I I think I think the original Baskerville did lose his. Uh, I'm trying to remember if he lost his hand in in the original comics, or maybe I maybe I made that up. But I, I but I now I can't remember, and that's yeah. part of the fun of it. Is like <laughs> you're like wait you're like wait did I read that on a fan site or did I make that up? <laughs> um, but but you know it's it's a ton of fun to be able to go in there and um, and look for those hidden those hidden gems that you can expand on. I, I That's tons of fun for me. Yeah. yeah. You know what was tons of fun for me? I got to tell you, when when I saw that this this book was uh, was being published, uh, I was super excited. And I can't remember which of you uh, on Twitter uh, posted that you had received a shipment, an early shipment of books from Scholastic. And you, you posted a picture of, of this pin. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 I almost had a heart attack because yeah. my prized possessions are my original. Oh, oh, wow. That, right? And, nice. and I have, I have the planet studio ones, the plastic. All right, Bob. Yeah. Ones. Sometimes describe it. Sometimes Bob forgets that we're, uh, we're, we're strictly we're, audio here. Bob. Right, you right. want to talk about what you're sure. showing? I, so I was just, I was just showing the, our guests, the, uh, the original Captain America Sentinel Liberty badges from the 1940s. Which, which I have a few of, and, and they're my prized possessions. And so I was desperate uh, to get one of these. And I, I actually ended up ordering a copy of the book from a small bookstore that you two gave a talk to. Uh, and, it, and it came with this little autograph card that you both had autographed, oh, and, and it came with the pin, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> but this is a great pin, and I wonder if, uh, you seem surprised when it showed up in the mail, but I wondered if you had any inkling or any involvement at all in Brent, you're you're um, entirely behind this i was surprised I, when it showed I made up. Brent, it. you got to tell the story yeah i designed it um yeah i'll just send you a i'll send you a screen grab we made like 12 different versions of it oh yeah uh, and uh we ended up settling on that as a nod 
and stuff. But we tried to actually incorporate for a while. We tried to incorporate the actual original Ghost Army patch, mm -hmm. the, the real, and we thought that would be a, a real cool way to honor them. But obviously, when it's a marketing thing, they were kind of like, eh, "We don't really know how that's going to go over." And so we kind of went back to the drawing board, and then we we saw the those old pins, and I was like. We should just do that pin. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, there was a lot of heavy influence on that, obviously. And uh, thankfully, there wasn't any issue with kind of honoring that and stuff. And so I was really proud on how they turned out. They are awesome. And uh, yeah, they sent us both a bunch of them. So so uh, they, they sent them. In, OK, so the box we get has uh, boxes of those pins at the bottom. And on top, yeah. it had these... Um, like the first chapter of the book printed up as like an advanced reader copy. Yeah. And um, so I get the box and I'm only expecting the advanced readers. I didn't know that Brent had designed this. I didn't know that Scholastic oh. <laughs> made them. I had no, I had no idea. So I opened my box and I see a whole bunch of arcs. I'm like, cool, I'll find a way to give these away. Then I'm like on Instagram or something. And Brent's like, check out this pen that I designed. And I'm like, where did you get that? <laughs> At the bottom I of your one. box. I was like, I want one. And they're like, well, we sent you like a hundred of them. And I dig down <laughs> in that box behind, but underneath the arcs and there's all boxes of them. I'm like, I, I had no idea they were even in there. And Brent and the, and Scholastic had been designing these things the whole time and getting them yeah. printed and, and made up. So that was a big surprise to me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. That, so that amazing. was a real treat for me. Cause I love, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so impressed that you have those because I've, I've read a lot of the old cap comics and they would have this thing in there, send a dime, you know, yeah. to this address and, mm. and you can join the Sentinels of Liberty. And, yeah. you know, of course, Marvel has, has done a Sentinel of Liberty comic now, you know, and, and, um, in my new book that I've got coming out in February, I talk about the Sentinels of Liberty as a fan club, like, like, like kids who were trying, who want to send off for it and that kind of thing. So I was already a fan. And then I saw that Brent made this amazing pen and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm as excited about you, about that pen oh, as that's you. that's awesome. I'm so the glad funny I asked. Story about that, No, yeah. And the funny story about that, that, uh, that signed book plate that you got. So they sent me a whole bunch of book plates and they said, sign these and we're going to, we're going to send them out with books. So I signed the book plate, right? Well, I didn't know they were sending them to Brent next. They just said, sign these. So I signed my name real big and fat in the, in the, in the book plate. And then, then, then I, I show up at an event and I see one and Brent's had to sign like really tiny underneath it. And I'm like, now I'm the, I'm the, there's jerk a long name like Spoonover too. Uh, yeah, I've got the short name and, and I'm the jerk who wrote his name really big in the box. And there's Brent Schoonover at the oh. bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I feel like such an idiot. <laughs> I just, uh, I just emailed you guys a screen grab of all the variations of the enamel pin that it went through. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 We'll check that out. We'll, we'll share that in, in the Facebook group. Um, we do have a few questions from our patrons, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, uh, first one, Alan, is for you. I'm going to go ahead and, and play this. Hi, Alan. Mark Dolmeyer here. I teach middle school English. My students love your books. I'm just curious what the secret is to writing. For example, Captain America, the Ghost Army is so perfect, both for teenagers and adults. We can both love that style of writing that you have. What is your secret to writing in such a style that everybody of all ages can enjoy it? Oh, that's a really cool question. And thank you for, for reading my other books and for sharing them with young kids. And um, for me, a big part of my process is 
that I try to take my young readers seriously. So I talk about tough stuff and I show hard things uh, on the page, uh, difficult, I, I, I tackle difficult topics. One of the first books that I did for Scholastic was about the Holocaust. I, I wrote a book uh, based on the true story of a guy named Jack Gruner, who as a kid survived 10 different Nazi concentration camps during World War II. He lived to tell his story. I worked with him to write his story up as a novel. And when Scholastic came to me and said, we want to put you together with Jack and, and have you tell his story, I was like, and, and they said, we want it to be for eight, ages eight to 14. Like eight years old is like elementary, upper elementary school. And mm. I was like, guys, if you want me to write a book about the Holocaust for kids, like I, that's going to be tough. And I said, I can't, I can't pull any punches because if I do, if I, if I yeah. sugarcoat this, that does a disservice to everybody who, who was a victim, whether they lived or died, you know, and, and it does a disservice to the kids too. It would be maybe making it seem like this wasn't as bad as it really was. And mm -hmm. it was horrible. And so they said, no, we get it, do it. And so I've, I've, I've since then sort of walked that fine line of, of trying to tell really difficult stories for a young audience. And part of the way I do it is, I'm really upfront about all the bad stuff. Now, the, the concession I make is that I, and, and Brent touched on this earlier, mm. I don't put in the, the gory stuff or the real visceral stuff. So I might say that there was medical experimentation in, in the Holocaust, but I don't have to describe it on the page, right? Mm -hmm. So that way my eight-year-old reader can be like, okay, I hear that, but maybe they don't know what it means. And so mm -hmm. they, they don't have a vision of that where a 14 year old reader or a high school reader or an adult will be like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about and they can picture it, but I didn't have to say it. And, and, and when that kid is ready to find out, when they're ready to know that, they will learn it. I think kids are really amazing at, 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 at skipping over the parts they know that are too difficult for them and coming back to that later. And so I've, I, and, and Brent was talking about how he knew he was gonna be drawing these monsters and these scary things but we couldn't be too graphic with it. And so mm -hmm. it's the same kind of decisions I'm making when I'm writing my books. Brent, when you, when you tackled this, were there things that you thought about putting in or had to take out because of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was, you know, the first scene we did obviously was with the zombies attacking and it, there had to be a kind of a, a restraint on like how gory you want to do. I mean, there's certain guys that would want to have drawn, you know, holes in the helmets or something like that. And, uh, you know, there was there was a good conversation with Lauren and uh, and everybody before about like, okay, where there's a lot of stuff going on. We start with a pretty heavy, you know, Cap is high, covering himself with his shield and he's getting gunfire rained upon him. But then uh, we kind of get away from gunfire for most of the rest of the book just mm -hmm. because there's not traditional war going on. You know, right. we've got ghost armies and we've got knights and stuff. It's a little more... You go into the Marvel universe of things a little bit, but you had to. I think you had to have shown that to sh to make it feel real and put yourself in that you know that time period to make it be like. Otherwise, it's just the Marvel universe and it's kind of fantastic, and you don't really. I think it takes some of the emotion out of it, you know. Right. Um, but you know, we we've also got some really great emotional scenes with Sophia and her family that explain what has gone on through the war with them that helps, you know, ground it a little bit. So I think yeah. that's just kind of the, 
the good thing about Marvel Comics is always, like you've said, like Brooklyn and, you know, Manhattan. And it's always been grounded really well. When a Marvel Comics done really well, it's always grounded in the real world. And I think Alan did a really good job of doing those emotional beats without having to hit it home so hard with gunfire and violence, uh, real violence. And so I think we gave just enough of that that we can we can go off and have fun a little bit. Yeah, so. there, there are characters in this who die. Uh, yeah. You know, the, there are there are characters that we get to know who don't make it to the end of the story, and, and I think that it's it's things like that 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 tell kids I'm I'm playing for real here. I know we're dealing with with superheroes and fantasy stories and ghosts, um, but actually the choice of ghosts as the major things that Cap has to fight was really deliberate. Once I came to it from the Ghost Army, I was like, oh, it's actually perfect because you can't shoot them. And you can't you can't cut their head off with a shield or anything like mm -hmm. like there's there it, it limited the violence that could be done to the to the bad guys in that sense and then the animated uh, armor there's nobody really in that so they mm -hmm. can go to town beating on those things and destroying those and they're not really hurting somebody so I get real action real adventure but with real stakes in there too and I think mm -hmm. that's a big key to writing for kids high stakes and and real consequences but then low key on the, the the visceral descriptions and and depictions so uh one of our listeners matthew glover asks what aspect this is for you alan by the way what aspect of writing captain america do you find most difficult oh what I, what I, so what do i find most difficult you know you got a guy who's running around with the american flag on his costume and um it it and I kind of played with this. It's both, it's difficult and it's fun. Um, part of the, part of the thing that I did with Bucky and Cap in this book was I wanted to say, why is Bucky there? Like, what, why is, why is a, a junior high school kid running around with a super powered guy? He doesn't have any powers of his own. And I described it as Bucky does the things that Cap can't do. He sneaks into places. He's a little bit more of a spy, you know, in the Marvel comics for adults, he's maybe an assassin. I don't, I don't lean into that, you know, yeah. you know, um, mm -hmm. in, in this, because it's a kid's book, but, but Cap is wearing the American flag all over him. He is a knock down the front door kind of guy. And I even use the, mm -hmm. that kind of terminology in there. And so you can't do a lot of stealth stuff with Cap. Uh, I, I found at least, I, I don't believe it when he's like sneaking around wearing all that stuff. I, I feel like he's kind of a knock down the door and, and, and you know, let, let them shoot bullets at me. I'm there to take it, you know? And um, so it, it, cha it changes the way you tell a story. Um, but that's why Bucky was so great as a sidekick is that he could do the things that Cap can't do. Mm -hmm. So let's pose a, the same question to Brent. What aspect of illustrating Captain America do you find the most difficult? Um, the intimidation of 70 years of amazing artists that have just <laughs> put their stamp on this character. Um, you know, I've drawn a lot of characters for Marvel and you always have like a little bit of like, oh boy, you know, like whether it's man thing in Howling Commandos, like, you know, trying to make it feel like he belongs from one of some of those great 70s comics that he came from or, you know, Ant-Man from, you know, even though he's... I, he doesn't when you think of historic runs people love that character and he's got some great runs but like 
Captain America, he's definitely easily the biggest one I've ever drawn where it's just like, holy cow, like everybody who's anybody has had a bit of a run on this character. And so you're trying to find your version of it and stuff. And I think we talked earlier about, you know, I did kind of take some stuff from the Chris Somney run with the, the, the way he, they, you know, the, I decided to illustrate his armor and stuff like that but it's um it was also going back and looking at stuff from the 40s and stuff and I, we talked about this when we did our book tour is like if you go back and look at those early early captain america books like his wings were almost ridiculously big like comically big and uh and i i didn't want to do that but i did choose to like draw his wings higher up on his head than the average um probably artist today does like they're almost like right above his ears and they're really small now like they don't pop or protrude too much and i was like no man they they gotta protrude like they used to (laughs) and um you know i mean i once i got the script too i instantly realized how much playing around we were going to do with the shield bouncing off things but like i my original instinct was well he's got to have the 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 try was it the triad shield like i wanted i was thinking that would be cool to have and then i instantly saw you know what we were doing with it and i was like nope that's out the window and stuff so um that would have been yeah. cool but i couldn't have bang it off his of stuff no Not as easy. no no <laughs> he, he could have he could have used it as a nice plate or something like that but, uh, <laughs> but no i think getting over the intimidation of of just like this is one of the most iconic characters you've ever had the chance to draw you know i've, I've drawn batman but batman was batman 66 where there was kind of like this kind of safety net on it like you're you're drawing an adam west version of batman right, right. And i always <laughs> right, sort of yeah. and i always approach that concept of like okay let's let's make it seem like the you know the carmine infantino and those guys were making a book based off of the tv show that's kind of how i approached it so i didn't really draw B- batman with this kind of pouchy soft body style he still kind of had a nice rip you know like like batman would have drawn in the the sixties in a comic book, but you know, we kind of made it more like, you know, like uh Adam West costume a little bit where the yeah. emblems more in the middle of the body and stuff. So I kind of just, yeah, it was really just pulling all these influences, Ushema, all these guys that I love, Ron Garney, um, Mike Zek, and just how is this guy going to be mine? And so thankfully we had 150 pages for me to figure it out. <laughs> and I felt well, really I, I good love... about that last page. One of my favorite things that, that Brent did was we, we talked a lot uh, when I was first doing the story with the editors and working on it about this being a very young Captain America. And yes. it's not his first mission, but it is, it's supposed to be relatively soon after he got the super soldier serum and yeah. is put into the European theater and that that Bucky is very young. He's maybe not as young as some of the early, early Cap comics, but I still tried to put him sort of late middle school, like like eighth grade was kind of what I was trying to think of for, for him mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, eighth grade or freshman year of high school. And with Cap, though, it was kind of like maybe he's like 18 years old. He just went in and 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 signed up for the army and got the super soldier serum. And now he looks like a grown man, but he's really only a few years older than Bucky. And one of the things I love that, that Brent did was, I think he looks super youthful. He, he, yeah. he just likes like a, like a really, really young man. And yeah. you, know, you gave him that dimple too, that, that really, that really, uh, you know, deep dimple on his chin, yeah. you know, which I, I just, I don't know. He looks like the, 
he just he just looks like he's fresh off the assembly line and i think that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly how he should look because it was like well, like an early cap story well we only draw him for one page and that's the last page without his mask without on. his mask on yeah yeah so you know i mean it was the only time i really had to draw him but yet you concept sketches you did have to draw him just so you kind of knew what he was going to look like and stuff so but it was funny to get to that last page and be like oh, I got to take his mask off and stuff. And, you know, and so, but uh, yeah, I going back at just getting over that was the hardest thing. And then obviously the, the making sure you're accurately portraying everything correctly, because, you know, Alan's known for, you know, being on with his research and everything for his other books. And you think his fan base is going to carry over to check this book out. And that's what he's known for. And you want to, you know, make sure that, you don't screw that up and so um yeah there was a lot of intimidating things about this book but uh i would say by about page 100 you're feeling pretty good <laughs> so. we, we had a lot of discussions about uh i don't know if you were in on this brent but i was talking to the editors a lot about when he could take that mask off and we thought about having him remove his mask at the campfire scene yeah early on and there was a big discussion about if this is Captain America right off the assembly lines thrown into into the war, he's probably not like, you know, the early comics, it was a secret identity. And the way that Bucky becomes yeah. his sidekick is Bucky stumbles in on Steve putting the costume on. And 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 so we we really decided, no, you know what we're going to do is nobody knows that he's Steve Rogers except for Bucky, because Bucky came in and saw him putting the costume on. And mm -hmm. like he's the only person in this book who knows his 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 alter ego and so it, it he can't take that off until they are totally alone at the very end of that book yeah uh, another listener nate charles uh he writes excellent work on ghost army i enjoy dr strange almost as much as i enjoy captain america and the way you entwined the lore of both characters made for a fantastic story any chance we could see a follow-up featuring both characters Ah, the million cool. dollar question right there. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Brent and I have both talked a lot about this. I've got lots more ideas. Um, my, I, I hadn't planned on expanding the story, like following uh, on to, uh, you know, Mordo's story. We, we, you know, I, I leave off with, you know, Mordo's dad telling him, you know, go and, 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 and study the mystic arts, you know, and we know where he's going and what's going to happen next if we're Marvel fans and we, and we, we know that story. Uh, and that's, of course, where he's going to run into to Stephen Strange. Mm -hmm. um, so I hadn't planned on that, but I was I was already thinking about other characters who would have been around in World War II, uh, Thor and Loki. Uh, there's a really interesting thing. The, the, um, the Nazis, uh, before they built the V2 rockets, uh, they had these um, enormous cannons that they had built to try and fire uh, across the English Channel and hit England with, with massive guns. And they put them on train cars because they had to keep moving them around. They knew if they built them into a mountainside that we would just bomb them and they would be gone. So they put them on these massive, uh, they put these massive cannons on train cars and they would, they would swing them out and take pot shots at England. None of those shots ever hit. And, and that's what led to them trying to do rockets with the V2 project. But they called the two guns they built Thor and Loki. True story that? from history. Like, and so I, I actually thought about doing a story where Thor and Loki show up and be like, guys, that's our IP. You can't, you can't use that. Um, <laughs> nice. And, uh, you know, Wolverine famously uh, was in World War II as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, is a Canadian soldier and um, uh, Black Panther's grandfather 
would have been mm -hmm. in in yeah. there and there's a great story yeah. about the black the panther yeah yeah and there, there's a great story about the black panther tank unit from world war ii which was mm -hmm. black american soldiers who were their own tank unit and and called themselves the black panthers like the story is just waiting to be written it is. That would where be they team one. up right and it, it like it could be cap and 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 you know and and black panther of the time and the black panthers and then you know bring in gabriel jones from from the howling commandos clearly i brought in two of the howling commandos in this uh in this book and my hope was that what we would see is another book with cap and bucky and two more and mm -hmm. another book with cap and bucky and two more and then maybe at the for a fourth book we would have cap and bucky and the entire howling commandos with nick fury there to bring them together like that was kind of my dream <laughs> uh that's all we got paid to do was one book i've come up with four different books and and multiple stories um i'd love to do more how about you brent yeah i mean i really enjoyed working with alan a lot i'd love to do more i think it's kind of crazy they haven't asked Mar alan to just do more marvel work in general um i don't want to turn around and gripe at him for anything like that but yeah i what the invaders stuff would be so much right. fun to do um I, you know i i i shortly i i know i told my origin of comics but uh i got a lot of comics when i was young through garage sales and stuff and I think I just hit this magic wave of a bunch of Midwestern kids going to college and they were just selling their, <laughs> their collections at garage sales and stuff. So it would be like, oh, here's a bin of books. I'll give me five bucks or 10 bucks for that. And like, I just, my collection just grew and I got like Nova, you know, like I loved Nova. Yeah. Like mm. I got this long collection of that. I got a bunch of Invaders books from the 70s stuff that, uh, you know, was coming out. And so I just that really shaped uh, kind of my old love of old school aesthetic a little bit there. Mm -hmm. And so that would be super fun to do. Um, you know, everything Alan's talked about where it's like form slowly forming the super group of Marvel universe stuff through like Wolverine and everything like that. I just see it so clearly. And I just think it'd be so fun to do, um, you know, never say never. I, I know that publishing moves at a slow pace, but, and I always say, get the book at, you know, a local independent bookstore, but I just have, I just through Facebook, I've had four or five people already post that this book is still being promoted heavily on Target's website. Like it was on yeah. the main page this week. Mm, it oh, was wow. in their flyer for the, all the kids for Christmas that they send out. Um, nice. There. And so it's still going really strong. So uh, who knows? So, Maybe, uh, start a letter writing campaign to That's Marvel. Right. Yeah, and Scholastic yeah, yeah. and tell me want more Captain America graphic novels for kids. Yeah. All right. You heard uh, that, that listeners. Yeah. yeah. You, you, all right. Well, we've been talking a lot about uh, what you would like to do, but is there anything that you could talk about is what's keeping you busy nowadays and any personal projects that are coming up? Brent, you got some, you got some, can you talk about any of the stuff you're doing? I know you got some secret projects. No, I can't. I'm so mad. I, oh, I was no. really hoping for New York Comic Con to have stuff announced. And then uh, it was like on hold. Uh, I did just do a couple. I just did a finished a, an X-Men cover today for Marvel, which was super fun. I got to draw uh, Cable in his 90s glory with the big goofy <laughs> shoulder ah. pads. And oh, everything. nice. Were there so a couple of pouches? Yeah, so that was super fun. Uh, I've done a couple. I've been doing covers for them a lot. I just did a really they've been doing these really cool series of throwback covers for books that they're doing so i got to do um craven the hunter i just did one for them for like his first appearance and stuff and uh 
man, I've, uh, I'm trying to remember all the ones I've just done. They've been kind of keeping me busy with covers. So that's been cool. Um, I have been slowly whittling away on a, a creator owned, um, middle, eight, uh, middle, uh, middle grade OGN. Uh, it's about my daughter's skateboarding club. I'm going to keep talking about it until I finally get it done. So it'll build <laughs> it into existence. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, there is a project I'm working on. It's a creator owned book with a pretty awesome writer. I just can't say anything about it. So it drives me okay. crazy. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. Stay tuned. Watch this space. Yeah. 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 How, how do, uh, how do people follow you Brent just to, to see when that's coming out? They can be first to know. Well, uh, I'd say Instagram is probably my most prominent uh, social media, and I'm B Scooney Art on there. And then also, if you just go to brentschoonover.com, I have a newsletter. I don't bombard you every week or even every month. I just, but I do a <laughs> massive, nice, fun newsletter about every six to eight weeks. And I usually do a giveaway. So I like collecting comics, but I get too many of them. So I'll, I just, ones I like a lot, I'll, I'll put out with any, Whoever sends something in, I'll send them to it. So I just like to to give stuff away. So on there, okay. Yeah. And that's nice. where I read his. And that's where I read his Dark Horse yeah. comic short. Just yeah, I try time. to do. I try to post stuff in there that I don't normally post on social media. So I, years ago, I did um, this pitch for Dark Horse about a story I had called the Burial Brothers. It was a little eight page like proof of concept story unfortunately it didn't get uh, any traction that i wanted but they did publish it in dark horse presents years ago but it's just been sitting there so i was like you know what it's kind of like a horror comedy thing so for halloween i put it on my newsletter and sent it out and uh it was cool i got a lot of response from it and they were like what was dark horse thinking not publishing this and i was like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> so, <laughs> you know but uh but yeah so that's where you can find me Sounds good. And and for you, Alan, what do you what what's keeping you busy nowadays? So uh, I have a new book coming out in February, and it is called Heroes, and it is a story of the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's about two kids who are on Ford Island, uh, which was uh, right in the middle of uh, Ford Ford Island Naval Air Air Station, uh, which was right in the middle of Pearl Harbor, uh, the 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 base itself. And they are on the USS Utah, uh, you know, getting a tour of the ship on Sunday morning when um, Japanese planes uh, descend on Pearl Harbor. And for the next two hours, the kids have to try and survive. Next hour and a half or so, the kids try to survive and um, have mm -hmm. adventures and 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 see the the the, the battle unfold around them. Um, but they are um, they're two kids who also love comic books, and so I. I took a lot of what Brent and I had done on the Ghost Army and the research I had done on Captain America and the early days of comics. And I have these two kids, you know, it's 1941. Uh, you know, so many of the, the these classic characters that we still know uh, came out in the late 30s, early 40s. They love comics. They want to create their own comics. So the whole time before the, the attack, they're talking about their the, the character they want to create. And, and I took a page out of the Sentinel of Liberty uh, from Captain America, they even they even talk about that. Um, they call their character the Arsenal of Democracy, which was a huh. term that FDR had used for the United States back before we joined the war. We were through the Lend Lease Act. Uh, now I can go down a rabbit hole talking about history. Uh, so Bob's going to love this. So um, I, I uh, through the Lend Lease Act, we of course were sending lots of uh, munitions o over to our allies in in England and and in Europe to help them uh, fight the Nazis. 
without participating in the war ourselves, not until Pearl Harbor, of course. Um, and so FDR called America the arsenal of democracy. And so they, they come up with this character they call the arsenal, uh, but, but kind of like the way Cap was known as the Sentinel of Liberty and, and a deliberate reference to that. And um, they, uh, they want to be comic book creators. One of them is the writer and one of them is the illustrator. And um, they are hoping that they will grow up and be comic book creators. The problem is that one of them is Japanese American. And uh, mm. of course, uh, the, the, the nation is going to turn on Japan and Japanese Americans uh, immediately uh, during and after the battle. And um, Stanley, my, my Japanese American kid, is worried that nobody re really wants to see what a Japanese American artist would draw, uh, doesn't want to see a Japanese American hero, uh, which they want to create. So um, there's, there's the real battle, but there's also a lot of superhero stuff in there, a lot of references to the early comics of the, the 30s and 40s, or early 40s. And um, to me, it, it's all a, a larger metaphor. I, I look at Pearl Harbor as, uh, and, and World War II uh, as um, the birth of the United States as a superpower. And when you're talking about superheroes and when they get their powers and what they emerge to do, uh, I, I think it's a, a really great thing to compare, you know, su superheroes who get powers and then what they choose to do with those powers. And the United States came out of World War II producing 80% of the world, like we had 80% of the factory production in the world because everybody else had been decimated and we were we had turned everything over to war production. We were the superpower that emerged and what we did with that superpower, that's the rest of the story. You know, that we, we had our origin story in World War II and, and wh whether we've been heroes or not is open to interpretation for, for history. But um, anyway, it, it's about the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's got tons of comic book stuff, real comic book stuff, uh, in addition to the kids creating theirs. And then at the end, there's actually a 10 page comic not drawn by, by Brent Schoonover as much as I wanted mm -hmm. that to happen. I know, I know, um, the, 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 it, Brent, you can't get him anymore. Brent's, <laughs> Brent's too busy doing it. covers. Brent's yeah, elite. <laughs> He's elite. He's elite. Uh, um, yeah. so the, the, we, we see the product that the kids drew, uh, at, at the end of the book. No, that's uh, so, um, I'm yeah, so it, it's that. a novel, but it's got a little bit of a comic book angle to it as well. And that's, that's February. Scholastic? It's called, yeah, it's, it's Scholastic. It's it's called Heroes. Comes out February, I think first week of February. It's up for pre-order. Yes, you can pre-order right. it now at your favorite independent bookstore, as Brent shouted out, or, or your favorite e-retailer, wherever you like to get your books. Right. You can pre-order it now. All right. All right. You you heard this here first, Mark Domeyer. You need to go ahead and order that for your classroom. That's right. Yep. That's the next thing. And then we're also doing a graphic novel version of Refugee, which is a book that a lot of, uh, of people who've read my stuff will be familiar with. It's my biggest book. Uh, there's an artist named Sid Finney who is doing the artwork for that. I've seen like original character sketches that he's done for the characters. Uh, they're amazing. Uh, and that book probably will be out in 2025. Um, that, that one is considerably more than 150 pages, Brent. So um, I know you'll sympathize with poor Sid <laughs> yeah. um, uh, on that work. I have yeah. to tell you a funny story about Refugee. I was at my oldest daughter's teacher, parent-teacher conference today, and I walked into one of the rooms, and her teacher had Refugee sitting right on her desk right next to what she was doing. And I was like, oh, 
I was like, Alan Gratz. She's like, I love Alan Gratz. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> funny you should say that. So, You're I, like, well, I've sat in a lot of hotel rooms with him eating pizza and watching football. And let yeah. me tell you, he's, he's not worth it. <laughs> no, I, uh, but I, uh, I think all of a sudden your daughter, Brent, uh, all of a sudden she she yeah. she got extra bonus points in she the did. class. Yeah, I think I saved her for <laughs> geography. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. so uh, Alan, and uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? So probably my newsletter, just like Brent was was pitching his. Uh, go to um, my website, which is www.alangrads.com. It's A-L-A-N grtz.com and my newsletter because i'm i used to be big on twitter and now i'm not on twitter as much and i'm on instagram but i i don't know i don't have the great visuals that that brent does <laughs> so i'm not i'm not as great on instagram so um anyway best place best place to find me is at alangrats.com and my newsletter which also like brent i won't spam you with it comes out about once a month Fantastic. All right. Well, and we'll put links to, to both of those in our show notes. Anybody can find those pretty easily. Uh, Alan, Brent, it was such a, a pleasure wrapping cap with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it was a real, real joy and pleasure having you. Thank you for having us. This was really fun. It was. Yeah, it was amazing. I, 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 I'm so excited about your podcast and, and uh, the yeah. focus on cap. Uh, what a great character to focus on. Uh, thank you guys for, for having us. All right, Bob. So, wow, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Alan and Brent are, uh, they had a lot of stories uh, and it was really interesting to to have them on the show and and take us through the their thought process and, and all the work that went into this. Uh, wow. Uh, 10 months to to put together this this story for for Brent and and all the work and research that Alan did. Uh, man, uh, it it really paid off. Uh, I think uh, they 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 hit they hit it out of the ballpark as far as what they were trying to achieve. And and you know they talked a little bit about you know uh, a sequel and uh, maybe a third and a fourth and the ideas they had for it. I'm all for it. Yeah, they were very exciting. I hope uh, Tom Brevoort's listening and uh, and Alana and maybe we can put a bug in their ear because some of those ideas were pretty pretty sweet and. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, I was really fascinated by um, like the, just the amount of, like you said, the effort, 10 months, right. For the art alone. Mm -hmm. and, and of course the writing and the research and the research for the, for the illustration, but all of the editing contributions that went in, I mean, it, it really did take a village to, to create this graphic novel in addition to, to, to Alan and Brent and, I don't think like most people know, like how much work goes into a project like this. Um, and like, but at the end, like you got this book that you've created and it's added to uh, the canon. It's, it's, it's added to the depths of some backstories, some characters, and it's brought a lot of enjoyment to young readers, but also adult readers. So um, man, that's, that's really something to hang your hat on. Yeah. Now is it was a fun story to cover in a, in a, Great opportunity to talk with the the creators for that. So, uh, we would love to, to bring them back on the show uh, if they do get around to to doing a second one. That would be a lot of fun. I'm really excited. I'm order. I ordered that book immediately as Alan was talking about uh, heroes. Heroes that pre I pre ordered that because I thought, man, that's something. Like you know, my son's not a big reader. He's 13, right? He's he's right in that age group that that Alan writes for, and he he's not a big, but he he tends to like those sorts of books about disasters. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
I don't know why, uh, but but as he was talking, I thought to myself, well, this this will appeal to him because you know it's Pearl Harbor, and he sort of likes those historical novels about like disasters and things like that. But it also touches on some of the things that I really love, and this book might be a way for the two of us to connect. Uh, and I think that's something you know. I, I think a guy like Alan, you know, was shooting for right something mm-hmm. to bring yeah. different age groups together um, to enjoy. That's perfect. Yeah, look at that. Uh, look at that, Alan. You you already you got one sale out of this, uh, <laughs> and that's great too because you know the he's Bobby's thirteen and the the characters in the book so are around that age so he'll have something to to relate to uh, in in those books. So yeah. Um, Fantastic. I, I hope I hope the book is very successful. Um, and uh, so, Bob, next episode, uh, we we've been in 2023, the last three episodes and uh, well, four, if you, you count the interview with our wives. Uh, now we're going to take a, a little trip back. We're going to go all the way back to 1967. And we're going to do, I don't think we've done this before, Bob. We're, we're doing Avengers story, right? We've, yeah. we've, this is the first time I think we're doing an Avengers story with Cap in it. Yeah, I think we, we talked about Avengers 71. Oh, I, I take that back. Uh, episode two, we did Avengers 4. Yeah, how could I forget that? Yeah, you're okay. right. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was 164 episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, this is going to be Avengers Volume 1, 43 and 44. What is that, you may ask? That is the introduction of the Red Guardian. Now, the Red Guardian was a Russian response to Captain America. They wanted their own version of Captain America. So they created the red guardian some of you may be familiar if you watch the movies right you've you've got um in the black widow movie you saw the red guardian in there uh and in the upcoming thunderbolts movie uh he will be in that as well well also in the upcoming thunderbolts comic book which is going to be written by jackson lanson and colin kelly that comes out uh this month and uh Red Guardian is going to be in that. So we thought, hey, why not an Avenger story that that features Captain America and introduces Red Guardian? Let's let's dive a little deep into that. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a, it's a great idea. Um, I mean, a lot more people know about the character now because of the movies, but they may not really know about the character in the comic books. And there were several Red Guardians, but this is one of the most influential and, uh, you know, the one that's probably most active in uh, the comics. So I think it's uh, I think it's perfectly appropriate that we we go back in time and, and dig a little bit deeper into that character. Absolutely. That'll be a lot of fun. All right, Bob. Well, as always, it has been a blast wrapping cap with you. It has. I can't wait to next week. All right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Verbonis, and you have been listening to another episode of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast.